episode 84 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shum. Today on the podcast, the government has seemingly mandated that we only review Netflix movies until the coronavirus subsides, so we'll be weighing in on the new true crime drama, Lost Girls. But first, how are you, Scott? Are you surviving and thriving in the great outbreak of 2020? Surviving, yes. Thriving, I really don't know if I'd go that far. None of us uh, are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that I, um, I, I really was up in the air going into like Friday about going to see movies this weekend, and I don't know, like a, a few cases. Like there was a jump in number of positive cases in Boston, and I was like, no, 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 this isn't worth it. So I canceled all my movie tickets for the weekend and stayed indoors pretty much. I did go for a nice walk outside. I mean, the weather has actually been like crazy nice in Boston the last few days, but it, you feel weird because you're like supposed to stay inside and not, I mean, stay six feet away from everyone when you're outside. But, you know, I, I did get out of my apartment to stretch my legs a little bit because I was getting a little stir crazy, went for a walk. I kept my requisite six feet from people and uh, then returned to my apartment and watched The Lost Girls. I've been watching a lot of TV. I know I haven't really talked about this on air yet. That my goal last year was to hit 100 movies uh, for the year, which I did manage to do by the end of the year. And then I was like, well, you know, hundred movies was good. You know, a good handful of those probably weren't up to snuff more than a good handful. So this year I've decided to uh, take a turn at watching more TV shows. So I've been watching a lot of TV shows. I finished the outsider. I finished Avenue five last night. Uh, it's season finale. I'm just started McMillions. I started Bojack Horseman. So I'm almost done with Maisel. I have two episodes left in Maisel. So get excited Nice uh, about that. I'm going to be caught up. And then I'm also almost done with the second season of altered carbon. So 2019 was a year of movies, and I did pick a good year overall to worry about that because, I mean, great, great year uh, in film. And then 2020, I'm devoting a little bit more to TV. Uh, Devs is probably next on my list. And then The Plot Against America starts now on HBO, which is supposed to be really good. Yeah, no, it's good that you're doing that in 2020 because there aren't going to be any more movies, it seems like. So you might as well just watch TV. I'm probably going to be joining you there uh, once once I realize that we probably aren't going to get any more movies. But who knows? Uh, optimism, yeah. right? I saw you. I saw your uh, Instagram story where you were telling people to ask for movie recommendations, mm-hmm. and I felt like uh, I've been playing sort of TV show recommendations, streaming recommendations for my friends the last few days. So I, yeah. I feel like we're uh, balancing each other well right now. Definitely. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I got a surprising number of requests. I, I figured I would once I, you know, with with what's what all is going on. Uh, so that's why I kind of threw that out there initially. But yeah, a bunch of people were hitting me up. And even after the story went down, a, a few people were asking me. So yeah, it, it, it goes for our listeners as well. You know, if you want a recommendation for movies or TV, we got yeah. you covered. Uh, so Absolutely. yeah. All right, Scott. Well, uh, with everyone quarantined in their homes for the foreseeable future, it is a good time to dive into some new Netflix content, just like we're talking about. Uh, like Lost Girls, for example, which I'm sure is seeing a nice bump in viewers due to the outbreak. Uh, Lost Girls is the harrowing true story of Mary Gilbert, a single mother from Long Island who is thrown into a sensational series of crimes when her daughter Shannon disappears one dark evening. Played by Amy Ryan, Mary is an in-your-face warrior who doesn't cower when the police led by Gabriel Burns, Commissioner Dormer, don't seem particularly interested in investigating what happened to Shannon once they discover that she was making a living as a sex worker. And when bodies begin to pile up, Mary and the other victims' families endeavor to solve the case on their own if they have to, while Mary struggles to remain present for her other daughters, Cherie and Sarah, played by Thomas and Mackenzie and Una Lawrence. Scott, did director Liz Garbus's shocking tale of the Long Island serial killer keep you engrossed throughout, or was Lost Girls a miserable slog better left for the local news? Yeah, so somewhere in the middle for me. I think that there's some times where this film is really powerful. I think it does some things really well. When you talk about the the son of central performance by Amy Ryan, I think it's a really great performance, honestly. It's one of those that if it comes out later in the year, maybe there's a little Oscar buzz around it. I think it's that good and that strong of a performance. And that and kind of comes coming with that performance. It's that story, that central story of, all right, this mother, you know, 
her daughter, her old, eldest daughter has gone missing. Uh, she's the system is, is sort of mistreating or casting aside this missing person because of the particular line of work that they did and the activity that they were maybe engaging in at the time when they went missing. And also maybe there's some socio-political uh, elements as well in the particular community on Long Island that there was in. And so for this reason, you know, this case is being sort of shunted aside as much as possible and, and swept under the rug as much as possible. And this performance that she gives really, uh, it's one of those like perfect storm types of scenarios for in terms of a story around, you know, it's this person's daughter that went missing. And it's this person who has the tenacity has the attitude for the lack of a better word to actually take on the system in that way when most people would just allow the situation to be swept under the rug because they don't have the, I don't know, the, I don't even know what the right word is, like the perseverance, uh, which it takes a lot of in, in the face of multiple systems kind of coming together to oppress isn't even always necessarily the right word, but in this way, it, it might be the right word, oppress a group of people or silence a group of people, maybe is a better word, um, and the issues that were being faced uh, in this particular uh, community because this woman this daughter uh, her name is is it is it Sh Shannon is that right Shannon Shannon yeah yeah Shannon went missing you know, she's not the first girl to have gone missing and the story tells it is in some ways about all these girls who went missing and just focusing on this central character and in in those moments I mean which is of course most of the movie I think the movie does a pretty good job it's in the periphery and the secondary stories you talked about her other two daughters Cherie and Sarah. Sarah, that's right. Yeah, Sarah. I, I I think that the story fails or falters a little bit in that element, especially when you have someone with the acting ability of Thomas E. McKenzie. I feel like she wasn't given too much to work with, and I really don't think this is one of her better performances either. I think it's a kind of a, a combination of the two. I don't think uh, either work together well. I don't know if it's the particular aura that she brings to this role didn't necessarily work for the role that was being played, but something about it didn't really work for me. And honestly, Sarah is, it feels like she's not even really a character in this film. You hardly know, know or learn anything about her. Uh, she's in a lot of scenes, but doesn't say anything and doesn't really have uh, much going on with her character until certain points later on in the film, maybe which, which we'll get into. But yeah, to me, it feels like if it, it, it could have been pared down or been more precise uh, with its storytelling and, and focus of the film. I understand that the fact that this is based on a true story, there's always more context that could be added and there's always more going on that sometimes makes for a little bit messier of a story. And I think that we felt that in, in this film a little bit. I think, it, like I said, it's a great performance from Amy Ryan. It's a good central narrative, but I think that the wider story uh, got away from Liz Garbus a little bit on the periphery, but again, a strong core. Yeah, I wonder if, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I wonder if the movie actually would have done better by being a little bit longer, maybe maybe no. another 20 minutes or so, because I think that um, it's it's pretty short. It's only about 95 minutes, which for a crime drama, a true crime film, uh, is quite short. And when I look at that uh, on paper, I think I would think, well, I wonder if, do we even need this story to be told then if it's only going to make for a 95 minute movie? Is there enough there? And I think there is enough there definitely yeah. for it a felt movie. long. Honestly, it felt long because it was just, yeah. it was a slog at times, not in, not in a negative way, but it was hard yeah. to, to get through sometimes. Yeah, but I do. But it, my point is that I, I don't think this was a case of they didn't have enough there. I just think to your point, they definitely didn't do as much as they could with certain elements of the story. Um, and they really did focus on, really just telling the story of these crimes from the perspective of the victims, which I think is, is an interest is, was, is a smart decision. And the thing that makes the movie more or less work uh, in, in many ways uh, for me, I think, I think it is a well-made movie. I think it is a well-directed film by Liz Garbus. Um, she has a lot of experience with this type of material. She's a, mainly done docu documentaries. This is her first uh, narrative feature, in fact. Uh, but she's an Oscar-nominated uh, documentarian. Um, and and so she's she's a very capable filmmaker. And I think that that shows, I think it is, again, a well-directed film. Um, but yeah, I think the, the story works when it is focusing on um, the, the journey of those victims, not just Mary and her daughters, right? But also the other, 
um, people who come into their orbit, right? The the families of the people who are actually confirmed have been confirmed dead um, from early in the movie. The other sex workers, Lola Kirk has a, a role here, which unfortunately wasn't substantial enough uh, for me. But um, but I think that uh, that is the strong part of the story, right? When it's when it's focusing on that, because so often in these sort of investigative type crime dramas, we're getting the investigator's perspective. And for obvious reasons with this story, you don't want to tell it from the investigator's perspective because the investigators didn't really do very much. Um, they they weren't interested in helping um, Mary. And that that is one of the, you know, ideas which the movie takes aim at and, you know, posits maybe a few reasons for why that was the case. but. I think this is an important story. I think it is a story that needed to be told. And I think that ultimately this film is successful enough in getting that story out there, I think, of just generally what happened to these people, um, the inaction of the police and sort of the social stigmas that the police um, you know, had against the victims, which people continue to have today. Um, I, I think that stuff is important to get out there. And I think that the movie works um, in conveying those ideas. Um, I think uh, there are some, there are some other elements, as you mentioned, the relationship between Mary and her daughters, I don't think is really that fleshed out. There's some stuff about mental illness. There's also a whole, uh, part where they kind of suggest maybe who might be the Long Island serial killer, kind of in a Zodiac type, hey, we're, you know, this hasn't been solved, but we're going to tell you who we think it is. And I don't know that it works in Zodiac for a number of reasons, but here, I don't know. It, it felt unnecessary to me to try and offer some sort of culprit. And in particular, there's one scene which felt really out of place and like, did this really happen? I'm not so sure. Um, yeah, but, and they completely leave out the fact that there were three other suspects that were also being investigated and uh, for for, the, for this, you know, this these serial rapes and murders. Yeah, um, and so yeah, there there are just some some disparate elements like that which I think keep this from being you know an absolute home run um, and, and something that really was was jaw dropping. But overall, I think it is a pretty well made and effective film um, and. You know, while you're quarantined at home, if you're a true crime fan and you got Netflix, I would recommend this as a watch. I think that you will get something out of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it is also different than most true crime for the exact point that you're laying out here that it, yeah. it takes the focus of the victims of the crimes rather than the investigators. And by nature of that, you're not going to get much of a resolution at the end of this film. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned already that this is an uns these are these are unsolved murders still. They still don't have. Uh, they've never arrested anyone. So if, if that's what gets you excited about true crime, then, you know, you're not going to get that sort of closure or sort of satisfaction out of this film. But it isn't. An, I think it is a, an interesting addition to the genre overall. Yeah, no, I, I think for that very reason, yeah, that makes it worthwhile for sure. Uh, yep. But Scott, let's get into some more specifics. You you mentioned Amy Ryan's performance um, as the mother here. Obviously, she's someone who's mainly known for her supporting work. She's been nominated for an Oscar before, um, but here she really uh, does take a take charge in this leading role. And a lot of the movie and whether it works or not um, hinges on how you you feel about her character and her performance. Uh, did it fully work for you? Yeah, I mean, the performance definitely worked out. I was watching this uh, movie with, with my girlfriend on Saturday night, and she was commenting on, like, oh, my God, that's Holly from The Office. And if that's the one place that you know Amy Ryan from, then, boy, you're in for a different kind of performance <laughs> from Amy Ryan. And Which, so, honestly, probably is where most people will know her from. Yeah, I mean... She's in The Wire. I think she's like a pretty prominent role in The Wire. So people okay. who watch that yeah. might recognize her. Yeah. But besides that, I mean, she has like a, a very minor role in Birdman. I can't think of anything else that I've ever seen her in, uh, to be honest, besides Bird, Birdman. Um, but anyway, I think that, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic performance. Like I said, I think the, the, it's such a strong uh, performance. And again, if, if you haven't seen her in something like The Wire, you probably don't see this coming at all. From her, and so in, in terms of expectations, of course, when expectations are always um, a little bit lower, it's easier to exceed them. But you're also wowed more when they do exceed them, and I think that that uh, plays well nicely uh, into that. It's not that she didn't have the ability; it's just that she's not necessarily known for displaying that on the screen. So I think that all feeds into towards the perception of this role, and and she absolutely earns it all the praise she has gotten, and hopefully will get as more people see this film 
on the screen. You talk about a role that's pretty nuanced. Uh, it ended up being actually more nuanced than I expected it to be starting out. I really expected it to have uh, almost one note to it after the first 15, 20 minutes. I really expected it to be sort of hard edged and uh, un an uncompromising type of role. And, you know, the first half I, I th is mostly like that. But I think you really see a lot of emotion and you really see this character break down, not emotionally, but you see it break down into, into different parts and different uh, phases almost as she struggles with the frustration, rage, grief, however, whatever you want to describe that she's going through uh, over the course of you know, the several days, weeks that this is mostly set over. It does have a fast forward point to a, a year in the future, but um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic performance and, you know, I hope that this gets enough eyes and enough recognition where she can get into, you know, even more mainstream roles and show off this acting ability. If that's, a, if that's something she wants, maybe she doesn't want to go to whatever place she had to go to, to, to play this role. Cause obviously I think you have to get to a pretty dark place to be able to show, uh, what she showed on screen. But again, overall really strong performance start to finish. It became more nuanced over time. And I think that, uh, that wasn't what I expected from the role and she delivered really well on it. And again, uh, she was able to own the screen really well and, and kind of all the situations that she was in. Again, maybe that's because of the craft of the story was a certain way that basically allowed her to overshadow all the other elements. But you know, she, she owned this movie. I, I think that this movie could have been made with a lot fewer members of the cast. Like I, like I think you could have knocked out a lot of people in this cast and still gotten the same experience. And that's because of how strong her performance was. It is a really strong performance. It's maybe the best part about this movie. Um, and, you know, I talked about her, I mentioned her Oscar nomination came for Gone Baby Gone. That's a, it's a role where she really brings the fire in that movie as um, the mother of this girl who's gone missing in, in Gone Baby Gone. Uh, very similar role here. And once again, she brings the fire, right? Like, I think that that is uh, what she is clearly very capable of doing and when when she brings out the best in herself as an actress is when she is given these sort of fiery roles um to 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 showcase her her abilities um and i think that there's a line towards the end of this movie where one of the other mothers says to her like you know you, you you're kind of an a-hole uh, but like people listen to you and if they don't you make them listen to you and i was like that is that is the character right there like that is that is the character of mary in a nutshell and i think you're right i think there is a lot of nuance to the character right because as much as you want to to get by get behind this woman and her crusade for justice and you feel sorry for her and everything that has happened uh to her in her life and the fact that she's having to go through this uh, she can be a frustrating character at times and um you know it doesn't always make the choice that you want her to make uh and i think that Ryan, amy ryan makes that uh, um captures that character really well of someone who um ha has spent their whole life maybe feeling like they they screwed up right and at certain times in this movie really just admits to that which i i think shows maybe some of the um ways that the police break her down, right? Because they also kind of suggest to her that, you know, oh, well, this is, you know, she was a foster child, like, you know, all of this stuff uh, and how about how uh, Mary was a bad mother to her. And, oh, that probably is one of the reasons why. And Mary, as we see over the course of the movie, kind of starts to believe it. Um, and there's one scene in particular where she's with Thomas and McKenzie, where she basically just says like, you know, those other people are, you know, deluded into thinking that uh, they were they were good parents and this happened anyway. Well, we don't have that delusion. You know, like we, we understand that we we weren't the, the mother and sister that we were supposed to be. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I think you can decide for yourself. I think there you know, I, I think the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think that she's completely innocent in all of this, but I also don't think that her actions probably, you know, did anything to help, um, help Shannon on the course that she eventually took. But regardless, um, I think that it's a complex performance and that Amy Ryan hits all of the subtle notes really well. Um, and I think that the characterization of her and her performance is absolutely one of the strongest elements of the movie. And yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the supporting cast then, Scott. Um, obviously there are some other notable names here, Thomas and McKenzie playing, um, 
playing Cherie is someone that we're a big fan of. Gabriel Byrne, very acclaimed actor, um, is Commissioner Dormer. Uh, Lola Kirk, I mentioned, plays this woman, Kim, who is the sister, I believe, of one of the uh, other victims. Um, yeah. Dean Winters is this other cop uh, who is kind of the, the mustache twirling villain of the movie in a way. Um, but Scott, what did you think about some of these other performances? Yeah, I, I think if I had to pick one other uh, performance in the cast, it would be Gabriel Burns. And it's it, you're mixing it up. It's Dorman, not Dormer. But uh, oh, my it, it, yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. There's so many. Well, I guess there's one main actress. That I think it with the last name Dormer doesn't matter. Uh, but yeah, I think he's probably the standout in the supporting cast for me. Uh, like I kind of alluded to already, I, I think that Thomasine McKenzie uh, doesn't have the right material here to give her best performance. And uh, with what she is given, I, I don't know if she puts in the best performance. I thought she was better uh, in Jojo Rabbit and certainly better in, in Leave No Trace the year before. Uh, for me, Una Lawrence, like I said, kind of a, a throwaway character. I, I don't want to say a positive or a negative thing about it because, again, it didn't really feel like it, she had much of a chance to leave an impression from an acting perspective. And I know this is maybe bad, but for the love of God, stop casting Dean Winters and things. All I can see is the, is mayhem, his character from the progressive commercials. I can't see uh, <laughs> anything else besides that. And so I, I just can't get it out of my head when I watch movies. It was the same with when I watched John wick or whichever, whichever John wick movie he was in. I think he was in the, the first, first one. one. I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for the, I, I couldn't see anything except the mayhem guy from the progressive commercials mm. and so and honestly this felt the same it, it, it just yanked me right out of the film every single time uh he talked or, not really when i saw him but when he talked on screen i was just it's really jarring honestly uh i, I haven't really felt like that with any other actor in my career just in, in, in watching movies yeah i i didn't even make that connection but you're right and he kind of plays mayhem in the movie right yeah i mean that <laughs> played- too i guess he plays this really like like I said, he really is kind of the mustache twirling villain of the the movie. Whereas Gabriel Byrne, I think you're you're right. He's a stronger performance, and he hits the you know again the subtle notes of this character. And I, I think I found his character ultimately more believable. Um, yeah. Not not as someone who was just outwardly like I'm not going to help you. Like like wh- what are you talking about? You know really just prejudiced and awful, like e- explicitly. Um, but in his inaction, perhaps um, really, you know, does, does reveal who, you know, the kind of person that he is and the kind of uh, beliefs that maybe he holds. Uh, and I think that like, I have no doubt that the police treated this case hard. Like I didn't, I didn't read too much into the the facts, but I have no doubt that they treated this case horribly. That they treated Mary and the other victims' families horribly. But I, I just feel like it does a, a tiny bit of a disservice when you have a character like Dean Winters's character here, who probably didn't behave, you know, quite like some of the police officers did in real life. I, I don't think that they were that cartoonish, probably, in the way that they treated the case. Um, so I think that you can get across the message, certainly, that the police were were awful in this case and in, in the way that they treated this case without having to resort to such explicit theatrics, maybe. But I, I don't think that's a huge complaint. It, it, it is just something that stuck out to me in some of Dean Winters' scenes. I think you're right that Thomas and McKenzie just doesn't have enough to do here. Obviously, she's an incredible actress when uh, she's given the right material even jojo rabbit which we we both weren't like in love with uh, mm-hmm. i think her performance is one of the best things about the movie um and obviously leave no trace we, we were in love with that movie and, and her performance was one reason why um yeah i will, say, I, I I will think- raise my hand and say that i she's not as tall as i remember her being la- like last week when i was talking about her the last of us she's only like five five she could probably i think she's just so much taller than roman griffin davis but but i i don't i think it's unfortunate she isn't because i was excited to see you know her in this movie obviously she's going to be in last night in soho later this year um so she's got some big roles coming up but not, not much to do here. And I think this could have been an important character, right? Because I think Sharia is in many ways, the person who is trying to sort of hold the household together, right? As her mother is just spiraling deeper and deeper um, into this case. Uh, Sharia is kind of the person who is like having to be the mother, so to speak, to Sarah, who is undergoing some, some things that the movie doesn't really probably spend enough time on. Um, and yeah, Una Lawrence doesn't really get to make much of an impact with her performance. Although again, she is an actress who has 
done stuff before will continue to do stuff and probably be very successful in what she does just given kind of short shrift here in the story um and it wouldn't be such a such a bad thing if the movie didn't like flirt at times with giving more to these characters and diving more into to what's going on with these characters but it it gives you those little tastes and then it just doesn't really go and go anywhere with them which i think is is a downside so uh yeah those are my takes like i said uh, i mentioned lola kirk too she um she is someone that i really enjoy uh, in movies like gemini and mistress america i, I really uh like her as an actress when she comes in to this movie as like this uh, uh i mean i guess she she actually does some some sex work herself in the movie um at, at certain points but she can't comes in with this southern accent from north carolina and i was like oh heck yeah here we go this is some kind of like showy like you know chew, scenery chewing performance i really want this and it just didn't really go anywhere unfortunately i think that they try to to do something you know a little nuanced with this character again like i said making her maybe it's just part of her um trying to figure out trying to get to the bottom of what happened but she you know puts out an, an ad on craigslist like all the other girls did um you know trying a solicitation um and so i think that maybe it's just the movie's further efforts to try and get us to empathize with the women who uh find themselves in this line of work but it just didn't work unfortunately and, and again it, it was it's disappointing to see a very good actress saddled with a forgettable role ultimately Unfortunately, I think most of the supporting cast in this film, again, with the exception of Gabriel Byrne, are either disappointing because their performances were average slash below average, or they just didn't really have anything to do. And I think that just goes back to the thing that I was trying to say earlier about Amy Ryan's is that I think you could knock off most of the supporting characters in this film and still get the same experience because most of it lies in this in that central role and um, for better or for worse. Yeah, I agree. Um Okay, Scott, there are a few points that we we have touched on with the story, but I want to make sure they get their due. Um, and of course, we have mentioned telling the story from the victim's perspective, right? That is something which is somewhat new to this movie. I, I can't think of another movie necessarily. I'm, I'm sure that there are some out there that, that take on a similar conceit, but uh, it, it is something fairly unique to these types of investigative true crime movies. Do you think it works for what the movie was trying to say? And uh, do you think it's something that other true crime movies should consider adopting in, in the future? Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where I think it, it works for one facet of the film. And it's ultimately, I think, the facet that is the one that should be and probably will be talked about most of all. And, and that's just bringing to light these types of stories of, like I said, sweeping certain crimes or victims under the rug because, you know, they're less palatable to wider society, however you want to phrase that. And I think that, that this film telling the story from the victim's perspectives will bring that element of it to light really well and hopefully start conversations, you know, not unlike, not, not unlike the conversation we're having right now about this film and, and about how the, you know, criminal justice system and, and other similar systems maybe mistreat or, or mishandle uh, certain victims because of things that, like I said, are, are less palatable uh, in the eyes of wider society. I think where it doesn't work as well as the sort of traditional true crime element to the show. I think that it's very difficult to uh, always follow the like the strictly true crime elements of it. And a lot of details are left out. If you go out there and, and do some research about people, they were investigating other elements of the story. And all I'll say to that is that that just, I don't think that's the point of this film. I think that is a, it's certainly a weakness, but it's not the point uh, to the movie. It, this movie I don't think cares too much whether you think Peter Hackett is the true perpetrator of the crime. I do think it's maybe a little bit, I don't know, disingenuous to only toss out that particular name when there were other suspects involved, even though if your movie doesn't, doesn't spend much time on it, the fact that it, your movie might acknowledge that there are other suspects being investigated probably would be a good thing in my eyes from a true crime perspective, if you're trying to, to operate in that space. But again, I think it, it carves out its central narrative uh, really well because of the way that it tells its story. If you were following Gabriel Burns, you know, Detective Dorman, you just wouldn't have the same experience, even if, you know, you ultimately go to the, get to the same end point of the film. And even if you are trying to shed light on the experiences of, you know, 
the Gilberts uh, overall as a family and these other and these other um, family members of, of victims. You just wouldn't have the same experience getting it from the detective's eyes, even if you might have fleshed out the more traditional true crime elements of it. So overall, it's effective in one way. It's ineffective in others, just like the other side of the coin for other true crime doc, uh, movies is that you get a good drama mystery story without maybe getting the victim's family side of things as much. So yeah, it's pros and cons to both. And this movie has its pros and this movie has its cons. Yeah. I think it's just all about empathy, you know, taking away the fact of course that it's kind of necessary to tell this from the victim's perspective, like I said, because they're the ones who really did the heavy lifting here in terms of the investigation. Um, In some ways you are following the investigators. (laughs) Right. Um, But also I think so much of what the movie uh, is saying is, is about empathy, right. And not just empathy for the families of the victims, but empathy for the victims themselves. And the fact that um, people continue to treat women who are in this line of work as if they are not human, like at the very least, uh, they they should be treated like human beings, which is to say that their murders should be investigated like anyone else's murder would be. And that's a question that uh, Mary said, asked, I think, at multiple times in the movies. You know, if this if this was someone else's, you know, if if my daughter was involved in something else, if this was some other girl, you'd probably be out there investigating. And there's nothing in this movie that you see from the police to suggest that that isn't the case, right? That if if this was um, you know, a, a rich person's daughter or, or anyone, anyone honestly, who wasn't working in this sort of line of work that they wouldn't be out there in the fields. There's that whole disparity between um, the the fact that uh, she gets, she organized, uh, Mary organizes this whole incident basically and gets the police called her, uh, called on her in this nice neighborhood. And Commissioner Dormer shows up in, after 12 minutes. Um, whereas when, you know, Shannon called the police on the night of her, um, her, disappearance and murder um she took them an, over an hour to get there um uh, despite she, her being clearly in distress um and so i i mean that was a, a really striking detail to me uh in the movie that that says a lot uh, and, and so it, it makes sense to tell it right from the from the perspective of of the victim's families because it is about empathizing with them too and the fact that they have had to find justice basically all on their own and that even even despite all of their efforts there's no resolution really to this to this story, and there doesn't appear to be any uh, r- resolution that the movie that that the case is going to find anytime soon. Uh, and in fact, as the end, uh, you know, as, as the postscript on the screen reveals at the end, it gets even worse for for the victims' families, really. Um, and, and that is one area, like again, because empathy, I think, is such a strong theme in the movie. They could have explored what what the daughters go through and, and kept it consistent with that theme too because because you know you, you want to empathize with what they're having to experience too and particularly sarah's character who is obviously going through a lot we we gather that from the movie we gather that this uh case has taken a physical toll on here but i don't think we really get a sense of what kind of physical toll uh or emotional toll or mental toll uh and that makes you know what is revealed at the end somewhat shocking uh because i just don't think that the movie lets on enough that what what was the problem was in fact the problem when it comes to the character of sarah yeah when when it comes to the end of the film and as it relates to sarah especially but just the family in general i think what we were, I was talking with you right right before we kind of turned on the mics and started recording is that one of the weaker parts of the film is the, this relationship with the wider family, the the mom and uh, her relationship with Cherie and uh, and Sarah. And the problem is the the postscript, the coda of this film with the text on the screen focuses in on those relationships and and basically tries to explain all these things that the movie failed to show you and could have shown you if it decided. Uh, to, to focus on that. And so, you know, forget about the things that like the very last note there, would, which we can talk about in a second, but even before that, and just talking about how Sarah was diagnosed with, um, was it schizophrenia? Is that what she was ultimately diagnosed with? It's just like, yeah, I mean, that explains a lot of the things that were happening on screen, but you also could have had this like in the movie, you could have had this be an important part and, and connect the things that you know i'm sure there are other elements that were uh, 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 that that went into that experience and that diagnosis that didn't have to do with what was going on with shannon and what was going on in the, rest of the film but there's ways to work all those things together because surely it's it's contributing it's having an effect on everyone's mental health 
in the situation. And I think that easily could have not, maybe not easily, but it, it should have been worked more uh, into the film as is. And then the fact that again, it was kind of left on the back burner for so long of the part of the film to first understand, all right, well, the daughter or the youngest daughter was diagnosed with schizophrenia and then have the last one on the screen be that, you know, she had a, she went off her meds in 2016, had a schizophrenic episode. And when her mom, uh, Marie or Mary, Mary uh, tried to intervene, she unfortunately, uh, you know, suffered fatal wounds and and died, and that was the resolution to the story that that Mary went through, and also the resolution of the story for Sarah as well. And it, and it just felt really out of sync with the rest of the film, and you know, not just talk about twisting a knife or, or leaving you feeling horrible about the whole, even more horrible about the whole situation, uh, with the fact that also there's no one that's been arrested or uh, or found, you know, essentially held accountable for all these murders. Uh, it, not only did it twist the knife, but it also just left you feeling like, wow, like I, I, this didn't even feel relevant to the movie. And of course, it is relevant to the story ultimately because it's how the story ends. But it, it, the story and the mo- it tells itself in the movie in a way that that ending doesn't feel synchronous with the rest of the film for some reason. And that's where I think I came, ran into a few problems with the ending. Yeah, because it's so much about the crimes, right? And that doesn't really have... <laughs> that much to do with the crimes i think it only makes its way in there because it's how mary's story ends and that is what the movie is um is so focused on telling Uh, last year netflix had marriage story this year they had mary's story sorry you can you can you can edit that out yeah i'll I'll edit that one out for (laughs) you no 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 leave it in leave it in Um, but anyway scott let's talk a little bit more about the resolution or lack thereof not just that postscript but i do want to specifically talk about the whole peter hackett element of the movie right because we've talked about how peter hackett who is this doctor who's played by reed benny who was also in the hunt so i got to see him twice this weekend um he um is kind of suggested to be he is the person that the movie offers up as probably the murderer a lot of the bodies were found in this marsh that is out behind his house um and um there's in, in particular one scene that I, I alluded to that rubbed me the wrong way where he's like where Mary is in his house and he's like laying his hands on her and it just felt like they wanted that moment in Zodiac, in Zodiac where where Jake Gyllenhaal goes to the basement of the guy who makes the movie posters and it just completely fell flat. Uh, they wanted something like really creepy and suspenseful and it just felt out of place. Scott, did this element of the movie work at all for you? No, I think this is where the sh- the shortcomings of the true crime element and I think whether it's whatever you want to call it bias, whatever it is that they're trying to paint this guy as, as the murderer. And you know, maybe he is, maybe he is the one to do it. I think that the movie paints at least like a a halfway compelling argument that he's the murderer. But again, I think leaves out some of the, not, I wouldn't, I I'm not well versed enough to say critical details because he very well may have been the murderer. I think it's certainly the opinions of the filmmaker that he's the murderer, but uh, or sorry, Liz Garbus and you know whoever the other producers and writers are, but I think that it, it just feels like it whiffs a little bit. I mean, I don't want to say completely misses. Uh, it's not a, it's not a total strikeout uh, from this true crime drama piece of it, but to me, it feels you know more like a miss than a hit uh, for me. And I yeah, it, it definitely was creepy and like a oh that's awkward, but not a creepy and like oh crap what's about to happen thriller kind of way. It was just creepy in terms of like, oh, this is an old man putting his hand on uh, a woman, but not in any way that that I felt like it added to the narrative of the true crime piece of it. And it's it certainly you don't get any resolution by the end of the film. And again, it seems like one of those things where you built up this one character, Peter Hackett, to assign blame for the readers to identify as the person to blame for it. Uh, when it really just feels like the movie should double down and focus on the system being the one to blame for not finding the crime, which again, maybe there's some unfair elements in that as well, if they'd gone that direction. But to me where they landed choosing a person who wasn't arrested, wasn't found guilty. And from what I've read, doesn't seem super clear that he was the person responsible uh, given, I don't know, less biased sources. Again, not sure how to really phrase that, but to me, it it just felt like they might've been better off and created a tighter and stronger narrative just by sticking with this sort of, dynamic with the police department in the area 
Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. And I, I don't really think I have too much else to add on that. But um, the last thing I do want to talk about is kind of what I brought up at the beginning, Scott, which is, did this movie really need to be made? Because, of course, uh, you know, it is, as, as we've been talking about, it's a dark watch. It's very disturbing. There's really no silver linings whatsoever to the story. Um, and like last year, for example, I, I talked about when we reviewed Joker, how if a movie is going to be just that unpleasant to watch, um, it needs to have, it needs to be saying something, right? Otherwise it's just going to be a really hollow experience. So was this movie saying enough to you to justify its existence? I think it's one of those things where it probably is saying enough. Like I mentioned a little bit ago, it does feel additive to the genre overall because of the particular narrative, uh, stance. It takes the POV of the movie, so to speak. And the fact that it does tell the story from the victim's perspective and, and does, highlight uh that that this part of society the you know whether it's sex workers whether it's people who are in socioeconomic classes that are um you know middle class or lower right people who are working class in america not being you know given the time of day especially you know working class as associates with sex workers when you get the cross section of those things uh it really i think it highlights the mistreatment that they might be getting from um justice systems so to speak and so i think it does it does say enough to to be made and to be watched especially in in a in an online sh- streaming platform like netflix where uh, i just think the the bar or the threshold is a little bit lower you know like it or not i think the bar is a little bit lower on streaming platforms like netflix and so i think it certainly clears that bar to be made is it going to be a standout uh, piece of of the genre overall that i think that everyone has to see I don't know that I'd go that far, but again, I think enough is there uh, to be worth seeing if you do carve out the 95 odd minutes of this film to, to watch it. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of the Netflix releases that you watched, for example, last year, but it does seem like this is probably a cut above a lot of those that you yeah. uh, call yeah. last year for sure. Um, yeah, it's so, one of those yeah. things where you, you look at something like the some of the docu-series, like the true crime docu-series that they're putting out right now, like the trials of Gabriel Fernandez and Inside the Mind of Aaron Hernandez. You know, those are really well way, well-made true crime miniseries that are obviously doing something different than than what this film is doing. Uh, but I haven't seen those, but from my understanding of how those are reviewed and and done, like that those are done a little bit better uh, than than this film. But you're right if you compare it to other narrative features, because this isn't a documentary. This is a this is a dramatization of what happened. Uh, if you compare it to like I don't know, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile last year, this thing uh, this thing's a lot better than that. It's funny you mention that because you should check me on this, but I believe that this movie has the same screenwriter as that movie. But um, but anyway, um, I, I agree. I think it does justify its existence for sure and, and the elements that we've talked about. At the same time, I do wonder, like you mentioned there, is is this a would this have been better as a docu-series? Um, because Liz Garbus obviously does have some history doing that. I believe just last year or the year before last, she did a true crime docuseries for HBO that was really well reviewed. And so um, would this have, have, you know, done better as a docuseries in which, in which they could have maybe number one, given airtime to all of the suspects that are out there, right? Like not just Peter Hackett, but also given the mental illness element of the story, it's, it's due as well. Um, are you talking Maybe about so, a docu series, or are you talking about like a, a dramatization of it still? Because I don't think you can do a docu series with this because you don't get Mary Gilbert; she's dead. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good point. Um... Maybe just a mini series of some sort, like you said. Maybe a dramatization, just yeah. something like I like I said that maybe could have hit on those elements that I think this movie was missing. Yeah. I do think that probably would have been better. At the end of the day, though, I still think the movie is relatively successful. Yeah, and I did check. Michael Werwey is the writer for both. Yeah, well, I'd say so he he's, uh, he he's didn't. Doing he didn't I don't know if the writing's the best. Well, you just movie. said it was better than that. So. The film is better, but that's because Amy yeah. Ryan like owns it in this film, and I don't, I don't okay. remember the director for Extremely Wicked, but I think Liz Garbus is probably a little bit better as well in terms of yeah. what she's able to do with the material. Yeah. All right, Scott. Favorite scene or moment from Lost Girls? If it's even right to say that there's a favorite scene or moment from yeah. this film, but man, do I don't know. One? It's probably just one of the one of the scenes where Amy Ryan is shouting at. Uh, Gabriel Burns character or something. I, I do like the scene that you mentioned it already. Uh, the scene where she goes to the house, knocks on the door of, 
is it Peter Hackett's door? I don't remember whose door it is that she knocks on uh, for several minutes or not for several minutes, but she knocks on it. He doesn't, no one comes to the door. She keeps knocking. She staples the, the missing poster literally onto the door. And then yeah. has this shouting match with Gabriel Burns, uh, detective Dorman out, uh, right outside when he gets there in 12 minutes time, as opposed to the 50 uh, some odd minutes it takes them, uh, the night that uh, Shannon disappeared. Yeah, I think the opening image of the movie is actually really striking. There's like an opening like 30 second sequence of Shannon just running away uh, from we don't know what really, but uh, it's it's basically what we hear sort of partially on her 911 call, her screaming help and all of this stuff. But it's shot with this really dark, like blurry, like shaky cam that is just moving all over the place. And it's really sort of scary and evocative and like puts you right in the moment uh, from the very beginning. And so I, I really like that. And when I saw that for the first time, I I thought, oh, OK, this might actually be a pretty decent movie just from the very first image. So um, I thought that that was uh, effective. Goes in a very different direction after that. It does. Yeah. Um, okay, Scott, put, let's put a score on Lost Girls. What would you give this movie? 5.9. Yeah, I'm a little bit higher, even though I do quibble with some of the decisions that the movie made. Um, in the end, it's well made. I don't regret watching it. I think you'll get something out of it if you're thinking about watching it. So 7.0. Fair enough. All right, Scott, that'll do it for our review of Lost Girls. After the break, we have the latest coronavirus updates and whether there will actually be any more movies in 2020. Who knows? But we're going to talk about that uh, when we get back. So we'll see you in a minute. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we are done trying to debate whether Gabriel Byrne's name in that movie was actually Dorman or Dormer. If you have uh, any sort of insight, <laughs> uh, please email us at, uh, what, what's the email? Somelikeitscott at gmail.com or something like that. I, I think know. it's mediaplugpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. You, you know where to find us on the social media. Just tweet but us. This is, this is the, the Yanni Laurel of this year, I think. <laughs> yeah, different sure. sources say the name is different. The movie, it's unclear whether the person's yeah. name is Dormer or Dorman because of the act because of the Long Island accents, but whatever. Anyway, we'll have to put that controversy on hold because there is obviously some news to talk about. Um, and it's hard to, to talk about any movie news without talking about the impact that the coronavirus has obviously had um, with tons of movies getting pulled. Fast 9, for example, getting moved to next year. Um, and basically everything that was supposed to come out in the next two months being pushed. Mulan, uh, the new mutants, once again, uh, it has been pushed. Uh, and several other films as well. Um, it, it does make you wonder whether um, other movies, for example, late summer releases like Tenet um, being being one of the big ones, is it going to get pushed? Is it just going to get put on hiatus until um, you know theaters open again? Because you know Regal Cinemas announced today that they're closing all of their theaters for the time being. I imagine AMC will probably follow suit. Initially, they had gone to. Uh, measures of like cutting down the capacity of each theater by 50%, only selling 50% of the seats. But with Regal closing now, I wonder if if they will if that will put the pressure on them to do the same. Uh, because also the box office numbers over this past weekend were the lowest since the 1990s. So um, obviously the virus is taking a toll on the box office, as you would expect. I managed to get out to the movies on Friday, but I don't think I would go again probably for for a while. But one thing that is interesting that came out of this uh, today, Scott, is that Universal announced that they are going to be uh, releasing some of their currently in theaters films. So The Invisible Man uh, and The Hunt and Emma in particular, and also Trolls World Tour, which is yet to come out, which but which is going to be coming out in a few weeks, I think. Um, it was going to be coming out when No Time to Die was supposed to come out, I believe. But they're going to be releasing all of those to VOD, to streaming platforms. And you're going to be able to rent these or, or purchase these films um, for a price, suggested price. What we're seeing is $20, which um, I, personally I think is pretty steep. Now, I've seen some different perspectives on this online. I think I'm thinking of that because 
I typically go to the movies by myself and that does just simply doesn't cost $20. It's $10 for a normal person. Obviously well, we have the stubs, so Bo- AFC Bo- stubs, Boston, but. like it, it's not crazy to have a $20 ticket if you're going in okay. prime time, but yeah, fair, but, yeah. but mainly $20 is a price you're going to get for like couples. Um, but that yeah. is how most people see movies. And so I was seeing, I was reading like Facebook comments and Twitter replies and stuff just from random people. And I was getting a fair amount of people saying, yeah, this is too steep. But I was also seeing people who were like, look, that's a night out at the movies for, you know, myself and my my wife, my husband. Uh, So I don't mind paying twenty dollars to, you know, basically have a night out at the movies in my house. Right. Because obviously we can't go out to the theater while this is going on. Um, So, Scott, what impact do you think this is going to have? Do you think that, first of all, that this will be successful? And if it is successful, do you think that other studios will start doing this with some of their movies. We'll see. Right. I think it's, it's, it's all about relative to what in this scenario, I mean, for a movie, I mean, for a movie like trolls world tour, I mean, like no one will go see this movie if the theaters are even open to show it. So unless they move it to a different date, then you are the only way you're going to make money off of this during its theatrical release window is by doing this sort of activity. I mean, I think this raises so many questions and honestly, we could probably do a podcast episode just talking about theatrical release windows and the potential implications of this day and date release that trolls world tour is doing. Cause they're, they're going to drop that on VOD on April 10th, which was its original release date, like you were saying. And I mean, that's never, I don't think ever been done before. And theaters, as we know very well from every time we talk about Netflix, theatrical releases on here will, especially the large chains, AMC, Regal, Cinemark, I think that sometimes gives it a pass a little bit there because they like to have at least some sort of uh, leg up on their bigger rivals in AMC and Regal and showing Netflix movies maybe is one way to do that. But those guys will not show your your movie if you don't have a 90-day window for VOD. So they just like point blank won't show your movies in their theaters. And that's obviously a huge percentage of of the number of theaters in the country between AMC and Regal. And so when you have something like this, going straight to VOD, you wonder how much longer the theaters will be able to hold out against major studios because obviously NBC Universal being one of the big five or four, I forget how many are left now, but maybe just four after the acquisition of Fox uh, by Disney last year, uh, major major studios out there pushing out content. It, I think there's a lot of really interesting places this could go. Will we see this in the future? I don't know. I mean, you look at that, like talk about the day and date release for Trolls World Tour. That's all good and well, but it's a different story for something like Invisible Man and Emma, which have been out for, I mean, now two, three weeks in some cases. Uh, Emma's limited release started at the end of February. Invisible Man, I think, was the fir- like that m- February 29th, March 1st weekend, if I remember correctly. So they've had three weekends or four weekends at the box office at this point already. And obviously you're going to make most for most movies, you're going to make most of your money in that window. And so having a quicker release to VOD for those films feels like a little bit different scenario than with trolls world tour. And so with that, it'll be interesting to see how much, how quickly that bumps. And I think it's those cases that I think are most interesting to see what kind of effect that it has moving forward on how quickly movies drop to VOD. Obviously if movies are going to drop to VOD quicker, and again, everything depends on the price point, but if they're going to drop to VOD quicker, then people are probably going to be less likely to go to the movies, uh, go to the theaters. They're just going to wait. They're going to wait for VOD. You don't have to wait three months. You only have to wait a few weeks now. I mean, again, we're not talking about dropping to Netflix. We're talking about dropping for you know this $20 price tag that we're talking about here, which is very different. You know, I think those are some valid points being raised about that's the price of a night out for a couple at the theater at the same time. It's not the same experience watching a, a movie in your own home on your 55 or 65 inch TV as it is watching it in the theater on, you know, I don't actually know how large the average movie theater screen is, but say like a 20 or 30, you know, foot screen. We're talking now more than I get. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, 20, 30 foot screen, whatever it might be. I, I don't have a good sense of my mind to put maybe 50 feet. I'm not sure. But the point is you're getting a very different environment. You're getting a better sound system than you have at home. And you're paying for that. You're paying for that per ticket. And you're not getting that with this VOD. Again, for people like us, the co- like twenty dollars is the cost of essentially our subscription to you know to see what you know eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve movies a month, uh, depending on how many of those three a week you're you're getting to. And so I 
bristle a little bit at that idea of paying twenty dollars, like renting renting a movie for twenty dollars. I mean, that feels steep to me. I was pretty excited to to hear this news, particularly for Invisible Man, which is the the one that I I want to see, and I was gonna go see this past weekend until I decided to nix it all. But I don't know if I'm I don't know if I want to pay twenty dollars just to rent the film for forty eight hours. I think I'll wait a couple months for that price to drop, uh, for the rental price to drop, and just watch it then since I've missed it in theaters now. I will say, yeah, I will say that I think these are the types of movies which actually will benefit, I think, by yeah. because you're not talking about the big tentpole films, right? You're talking about mid-budget movies like The Blumhouse Invisible films. Man, like yeah. The Hunt, like, yeah, those are two Blumhouse, Blumhouse movies right there. Then you have Emma, right? Like a Jane Austen adaptation of a, of a novel that everyone knows, you know, a lot, a lot of people are familiar with. Um, I think these are the types of movies which people are not going to probably rush out to the theaters to see, but if they see this popping up on their, you know, on their streaming app or whatever, they're like, Oh, Hey, I kind of wanted to see that. I saw the trailer for the invisible man. That looked kind of good. I'll, I'll print this for however much and, and watch it. Whereas something like Mulan, right? If, if Disney somehow said they were going to drop Mulan on Disney plus, like it would do well, certainly. But if they said, we're going to drop this on Disney plus, and then probably release it in theaters once theaters are open again. I don't know that I would watch it on Disney Plus. I probably wouldn't. Um, I, I just think that um, the these are the types of movies which are going to improve the the reach of who they who they actually reach by going on VOD. Whereas something like Mulan is just gonna it's gonna reach the same number of people no matter whether it's in theaters whether it's on VOD. I think um, again, and, and so I think that with- is interesting. And when we say this is on VOD, it's this is not going on to Hulu, Netflix. I mean, right. maybe New Mutants goes on Disney Plus or Hulu. I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens with that film. But for these, it's not like you know you're going, you're dropping this onto streaming because it's not. I mean, it is streaming, but you have to pay twenty dollars for it for the rental. I think that's the sticking point. I mean, it's certainly going to help the the top the bottom line for these films, especially for something like um, you know Invisible Man or Emma, which again low mid budget where. In terms of if you're talking about multiples of your of your expenses on the film, it's actually improving it. But for Mulan, like there, I don't see much to your point and going and fleshing out a little bit further. I don't really see a point to showing, you know, dropping that movie to VOD. You wouldn't see the purpose of point of dropping something like No Time to Die or F9 onto VOD. I mean, that would be crazy. These theaters would lose so I mean, these companies would lose so much money. You yeah. can't. I, I was listening to a debate actually just in, in general about the cost of movies and the theatrical experience last, I think over the weekend, it was, I think it was one of the slash film podcasts. They were talking about uh, theatrical releases and and how that was affecting it. Not necessarily in the, in the context of what we're talking about right here, but they're talking about how like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, people uh, like, Oh, what point are we going to see movies just go straight to VOD? But the problem is like, you can't spend a hundred million dollars on a film and, Forget going to a streaming platform, but drop it onto VOD where you rent it for twenty dollars. You're not going to make your money back mm-hmm. on that. Like, there's just no, there's no way you you ha- like. I think I mean, maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe I'm just totally off base. But I don't think you can make a hundred million on VOD streaming. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, what you would do there? I mean, the whole, whole point for people like us. I just is- think it's it's untested waters, right? Like, I, I I mean, I think that we just haven't had the right movie come along yet to to yeah. test that theory out. Yeah, and I don't. Unfortunately, I don't think Trolls World Tour is going to give a fair sample no. uh, for that. But I'd be curious if, you know, again, Marvel's not going to drop Black Widow on VOD. But, but take no on, time to die, for example, dropped on on VOD. It would do really well. I mean, would it make a billion? Because that's what the last Bond movies have been making. They've been making a billion dollars. I, I I don't know. I think I mean that is that is the question. That is the question. I I honestly don't know, but. I wouldn't be stunned if it did, right? Especially if it's twenty dollars, right? Because yeah. then you might have people like us who would normally only have to pay ten dollars, who mm-hmm. really want to see a James Bond movie by ourselves. You know, we you know might pay twenty dollars for it. Yeah, I mean, I think the question to ask yourself is: is that will fifty million people spend twenty dollars yeah. on it? Like that's that 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 gets you to a billion dollars right there. Um, again, that's not if, if they will drive to the theater and spend, you know, $10 to see it. I don't see why they wouldn't, honestly. Maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I just think that it, yeah. it's different going to the theater. You're getting a different experience. Like you're 
you're willing you're you're willing to pay more money for a movie in the theater because you're you're getting a theater experience now maybe that's how i feel certainly yeah yeah and again maybe i'm biased and maybe that's not how maybe most people couldn't care less they'd rather pay the exact same money to watch in their home than watch it in the theater that's not my take i'm in fact veer you know way the other direction on that and I don't know. I'm uh, if if Steven Spielberg ever listens to this podcast, he'll be really happy to hear that from me, probably. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, I, I'm I'm skeptical that that even with something like Bond, fifty million people would pay twenty dollars. I just feel like pirating the movie and torrenting it would be way easier because yeah, uh, you can true. rip it off of the download, things like that. I just think that a lot more revenue potential revenue would be lost uh, there to to piracy and things like that. Um, I'm just a little yeah, skeptical. I think, especially I think with, that's a fair point. Yeah, and may, maybe someone like Bond doesn't suffer that, but if everyone starts going to VOD like that, there are going to be winners and losers, just like there are in the theatrical setting uh, today. And so we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, ultimately, I think that I actually think that these movies, these specific movies that are coming out this weekend, will do pretty well. I wouldn't be surprised if they if they don't don't make a good amount of money off of them, just because yeah. I think. I think you got all the the markets cornered right by these three movies. I think you have The Hunt, which will be for like the genre fans. I think you have Emma, which will be yeah. for like the mom. genre fans, and and you have The Invisible Man, which is kind of for like the film bros like us. You know, the movie that's doing nah, Emma. Emma's for you, man. Yeah. Emma's for you, the people and who worship at the, worship at the altar of Little Women. But you know, you know what I mean. Like the Invisible Man is for the letterbox crowd. I think um, right, that, that's probably true. So is the yeah. Hunt, though. To be honest, I mean, you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't say it was good, but it's targeted for the letterbox on paper. Crowd. Yeah, maybe, but uh, I don't know. Um, anyway, you can. I you won't can pay twenty dollars to see that movie. I'll tell you that much. I will not pay twenty dollars. Yeah, you can check out my review in this week's newsletter of the Hunt. But Scott. Moving on, there is one more thing to touch on before we close. I know that you checked out the Soul trailer, the new the new trailer for Pixar's next movie. Obviously, we reviewed Onward uh, last week, and based on that, we have high expectations for this movie, I think. Did the trailer give you what you were looking for? Yeah, I think it definitely fleshed out some of the the story a little bit more. It felt more like a story trailer than, uh, I guess, like a feeling or like an environmental trailer it's kind of what the first one felt like you just kind of got a glimpse of the world you learned a little bit more about the character the adventure that the person's going to go on uh, as much as inside out is a story about this kid or, or child dealing with emotions uh, this is a story that feels complementary to that and i think that was kind of confirmed by this trailer that this is a story that has some adventure elements to it it's not all it's not all kind of emotional drama piece to it it is still a pixar film it it wants to be entertaining in the ways that inside out was as well that is about this aging this person who's a little bit older they're aging they're reaching a point in their life where they're thinking dealing with different like the kinds of emotions that come with being a little bit older and i think that that is a really interesting compliment to what is currently my favorite pixar film i'm currently re-watching them i've mentioned on the podcast before that uh we'll see if in my reevaluation, my number one Pixar movie changes, but Inside Out being my favorite, getting the same creative team here uh, on on Soul, and so I'm really excited to see the themes that they're able to kind of, in some ways, build off of from Inside Out, and also complement uh, those themes explored in Inside Out as well. And uh, look, it looks gorgeous. Jamie Fox is in the voice is the voice of the lead character here is great. Tina Fey, I believe, is this one in this one as well. So it's a really strong voice cast, just like an Onward. Uh, it's a really strong story. And if there's anyone I trust at Pixar uh, to create a film that emotionally really gets at the core and speaks to me, I think it's Pete Docter. And so I'm really expecting a lot out of this film. Yeah, I actually still need to watch this trailer. I confess I haven't checked it out yet. I didn't do my homework. Um, yeah, it's, it's like really interesting because you get a little bit more about what happens after. Because I think the first trailer kind of really leaves you at the point where he falls. Like he's yeah. walking around, he falls. And it's kind of like a, it raises the question of did he die? And that's like I think that's literally a line in the trailer is did he die? And so what he comes across is this kind of purgatory is not the right word. But I think that captures this sort of this liminal space between life and and death and the afterlife. And uh, he he meets these souls uh, that are waiting to cross over into the afterlife. And uh, the adventure kind of spans on from there. I haven't seen Coco before, but I think Coco has a few elements of that as well in terms of uh, the afterlife, because that's obviously Mm -hmm. uh, set around uh, uh, Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead. 
in Mexico. And so I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that one because I think that one's going to really speak to me. And I and I wonder after seeing that uh, if the my perceptions of soul and my expectations around it and, and the story and the narrative it can create will change a little bit. Um, but no, yeah, I think it, it looks really great. It looks, I mean, look, it, it's stunning. Pixar's animation is always stunning. Uh, and, and it looks to be, again, continuing to keep the bar high for animated films. Yeah, no, I, I'm very much looking forward to this. I did like what I saw in that first teaser. Um, and so I'm expecting, I'll, I'll like what I see in, in this trailer as well. Though, of course, like I said, it does have a high bar to live up to with Onward, but I think Pixar can do it. So yeah. um, hopefully this movie comes out on time, fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, look. Nothing's I guaranteed at this point. I don't see how Black Widow is going to come out on time. I don't see, I mean, you look at later in May or you start looking at June, things like Top Gun and that's late June, Souls before that. Maybe Memorial Day is a good is a good flag to put in the ground on when movies mm. will actually start releasing. I think maybe that's even optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I don't know what's going to happen with Black Widow though. The good news is that Dune is safe. It seems like <laughs> Uncharted's not though. Yeah, well, that movie's <laughs> never safe, uh, and neither is Nubians apparently. But uh, okay, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the Twitterverse? At Shelton two zero one three to inform me the actual name of this detective from Lost Girls. Yes, and you can do the same to me at Scarvy Dent. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Some Like It, Scott. If you have and you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page at Patreon.com/slash/MediaPlugPods. Uh, you have a bunch of reward tiers over there. Um, even if you can't support us, like, subscribe, rate, review, do all the things on your preferred podcast app. And we hope that you will join us for our next episode on which we'll be taking on another Netflix release. Uh, for, for all of you quarantined folks out there, we'll be talking about the Spanish horror movie, The Platform. Uh, but until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.